Well, it's a privilege to be here at, at King's Church. I'm thankful for the <clears throat> reminder from Matt and the call to worship that what I'm trying to do up here now is not to convey information, but to, to praise God through preaching and that we might exalt his name together. Would you turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 1? If you don't have a Bible, it's printed there in your bulletin. Jeremiah chapter 1, and let me pray for us as we begin. Father, you tell us in this ancient book that you touched the mouth of Jeremiah and you put his, your words in his mouth. And to this day, they remain your words for your people. God, I pray you'd give us the conviction that this is so, that you would touch our hearts with your powerful word. Show us who you really are. Convict us. Help us know you more and love you more so that we might follow Christ in obedience and holiness. In his name we pray, amen. Let me read for us Jeremiah 1, 1 through 10. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth, for, all, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. This may seem a little odd, but I want to start our examination of this passage by giving you a, a job description. Now, some of you may be retired, some of you too young to work, and some of you have a job, but at some point in our lives, everybody has needed a job and has needed to work. So I want you to just imagine with me that you need a job or someone you know close to you needs one, and I want to see if you're interested in, in this one. So here it is. It's a full-time position. In fact, it's one of those jobs that'll consume your entire life. The pay, well, <clears throat> it's not great, but you'll survive. You won't starve, at least most of the time. The work environment will not be great. Most likely, you will not make any friends. In fact, I can pretty much guarantee no one will like you. And that's because of your job description. Your job is to tell the people 
all the things they don't want to hear. You see, it's a, it's a failing company, and it's full of stubborn people, and it's headed towards extinction. And we need somebody to tell them. Your work will be characterized by intense personal conflict, isolation, and a lot of crying. Not from them, but you. You, you will be doing the crying. But no, this is an important position. It's serious. The stakes are very high. So in light of this, it would be better if you didn't have a family. No need to involve anyone else in this kind of work. Also, you're not allowed to go to weddings or parties or celebrations of any sort. It's just not time for that. The contract is for 40 years. It's a 40-year position. And we're looking for basically a lifelong commitment from you. To be brutally honest, we're looking for somebody who's willing to go down with the ship. And what do we expect? Not much. These people are not likely to change. Your work will probably be ineffective. Now at this point, you're like, ha ha, very funny. Nobody would ever take that kind of job. But, but I haven't, say, uh, haven't read the benefits yet. You ready for the benefits? You were born for this. This is what God made you to do. Before you were born, he had this job in mind for you. And he formed you in the womb to do it, and to do it well. Your work will be terrible, but you will know while you're doing it that this is God's will for your life. And you won't have good relationships or physical comfort, but you will have God's presence, and he will protect you. And here's the best part. While you won't see immediate results, you won't have immediate success, your message will offer genuine hope to the people here. And centuries later, thousands and thousands of years later, people will still be reading your words. So you won't have a comfortable life, but you will have a meaningful life because your words will last forever. So what do you think? Would you do it? Well, I hope by now you understand I'm talking about the prophet Jeremiah. This job description was his life. And while none of us can or will live his life, we each face a call to discipleship, to walk with God and follow Christ no matter what. And for most of us, like Jeremiah, we will not see our reward in this life. But God will help us. And one of the ways he helps us is he gave us the book of Jeremiah. God preserved this book so that we might read it and catch a glimpse of who he really is. So right at the outset today, I want to give you the, the main idea behind these ten verses. And the main idea is simply this. Through the words of Jeremiah, we hear the voice of God and can see who he really is. Through the words of Jeremiah, we hear the voice of God himself and can see who he really is. And what we see is a God who's not like us, who God who often seems strange, a God who is the judge and who is to be feared above all else, but also a God who is for us, who loves us and will save us if we will trust in him. 
Now these first 10 verses in Jeremiah serve as a prologue to the entire book. They're like a preview of the coming attractions. It's almost like we're watching a movie trailer in the first 10 verses. And you're getting short glimpses of what's going to happen in the rest of the book. And they preview everything to come. So I want to explore this, this idea that through the words of Jeremiah, we hear the voice of God and see who he really is. I want to explore it under four headings. Number one, God in history. Number two, God in eternity. Number three, God's personal touch. And number four, God's global power. So God in history, God in eternity, God's personal touch, and God's global power. Let's look first at verses 1 through 3. God in history. There was a very popular intellectual movement in the 17th and 18th centuries called deism. And what the deist said was basically that, yeah, God has some knowledge about the world, but he doesn't control it. Or, yeah, God upholds the world, he made it, but he, he doesn't intervene in the world. Or they would say, he has a, he has a general kind of oversight, but he, he's not concerned for the details. And what's happened with deism is it was popular among Enlightenment philosophers, but then it kind of settled down into culture and became a very, very convenient philosophy and ideology for people. Because you, you didn't have to go all the way to become an atheist. That's too hard. No one has been able and ever will be able to prove the non-existence of God. But what the deists did was they made living without God very convenient because you get to believe in him and not have him mess with your life. That was their doctrine, that yes, God exists, but he doesn't mess with my life. So many find it useful, but no one, no one who reads the Bible could ever find it plausible. I mean, look at these first three verses. You get six historical people mentioned in the first three verses of Jeremiah. You get specific geographical places mentioned. You get specific years and even months mentioned. And what's the theme? The theme is, through Jeremiah's 40-year ministry, the Word of God just keeps on coming. God speaks to real people in real space and time again and again and again. He tells people who he is. He tells them exactly what he wants them to do. He warns. He admonishes. He persuades. He commands. He listens to them and responds. He even mocks them and expresses extreme frustration with them. But what no one can say reading the Bible, and especially the book of Jeremiah, is that he is silent or that he doesn't care. And while, yes, it's true for a time he does go silent, and yes, it's true that he may choose to work in different ways, like in the book of Esther, the scriptures preserve for us this witness of the voice of God speaking into human history. And the scriptures are written for us. They are our covenant document that keeps a permanent witness of our covenant-keeping God. One of the famous deists in the 1700s was named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And he said one time, very sarcastically, 
If God wanted to say something to me, why didn't he just say it? Why does he have to go through Moses to do it? And we recognize in Christians that we often, though we wouldn't say it like that, have the same feeling. Yes, I recognize God spoke to Jeremiah, touched his mouth. But what about today? Is he, is he involved in history? Is he speaking to me today? But we also recognize that these words, these scriptures, are not merely preserved for us. They come to us living and active. They never fail. You see, God only has to say something once, and its power and efficiency endure forever. So we see that though historical situations change, God never changes. If he cared that much then to speak so many times to so many people, he cares that much now. He is working and he has spoken. And the question is, are we willing to listen? Are we willing to listen? So God speaks in history. Let's look at verses 4 through 5. God in eternity. God in eternity. Now every pagan religion, past and present, has believed that God or the gods are involved in some way in human history. But what they also believe is that the gods are also a part of this universe. That they're contained in some way within it. And so they would teach that they may be more powerful than us, but they, they still have needs. They're not completely free and self-sufficient. Well, Jeremiah tells us a different story. Jeremiah tells us there is one God who created the world and everything in it. Listen to these verses throughout the book of Jeremiah about creation. In chapter 10, he says this, Thus you shall say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretch out the heavens. And then in chapter 32, After I have given the deeds of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Now, in the context of these verses, where God tells Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. He's showing us God's specific knowledge and plan for Jeremiah. This is a God who knows all things, who plans ahead of time, who forms people for specific purposes and sustains them and protects them throughout their life. This is a God with exhaustive knowledge, absolute authority, and complete control. And yes, he speaks in history, but he is not contained within history. He is not reacting to us. He is not learning or growing. And he is not fulfilled by us. And we have to be honest, this is scary. When you come to the realization of who the God of the Bible truly is, not merely what he does, not what he does in history, but who he is in himself, it can be incredibly threatening. In human politics, we have lobbyists, right? And a lobbyist's job is to try to exert, by whatever means possible, influence 
on legislators to get what they want for whatever group they work for. But in true religion and biblical Christianity, there are no lobbyists, right? Because of who God is. I mean, you can imagine the, the strategy meeting at the lobbyist firm where they say, okay, here's our, here's our ta- target for the day, the God of the Bible. What do we know about him? And a guy reads out maybe from Acts 17 where Paul says, the God who created the world and everything in it, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in temples made by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. But he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. And then they ask, what's our strategy? He created the world and everything in it. He has complete authority and control. He needs nothing. It's going to be a short meeting. There's, there's no angle there, right? There's no angle for the lobbyists. And that's why, as Christians, we have ministers, not lobbyists. And ministers take what God has out of his infinite abundance and give it to his people. It's a one-way street. But isn't it amazing in these verses how God can, at the same time, blow our minds, rebuke us in a sense, and also comfort our hearts in the same several verses? Because at the same time he's revealing his exhaustive knowledge, his transcendence and providence over the world, he's telling Jeremiah... He knows him personally. I know you, Jeremiah. So not only does God know all things, he knows Jeremiah individually before he's born. Not only does he have a plan and purpose for his entire creation, he has a plan and a purpose for Jeremiah's life. And not only does he raise up kings and officials in high places, he appoints prophets who are teenagers who live outside of Jerusalem. So the Bible reveals to us a God who inhabits eternity, but who has the wisdom to know exactly what to do at every moment of human history. He has the power to carry it out in his own good timing. And this ought to inspire all in us, because it reveals a God not fashioned by human hands, not created by the thought and imagination of man. He's above us, outside of us. We can't comprehend fully his being and his paths, his ways are beyond tracing out. But notice, notice what God gives this knowledge to Jeremiah for. God gives this knowledge of him being in eternity, knowing beforehand all things, specifically for comfort. He's looking to comfort Jeremiah with this. And he says, Jeremiah, you may not have anything else, but you will have me. You are mine. I know you. I have appointed you. You are my prophet. And the real God is the only thing that can satisfy the human soul. And this is incredibly challenging for us because you have to read these verses with the rest of Jeremiah in mind, knowing what's coming for him in his life. And... (laughs) And with all that's coming for Jeremiah, this is what God chooses to reveal to him. I know you. I formed you. I appointed you. I will be with you. 
So Jeremiah's going to have a miserable life and people are going to hate his guts. But he knows the truth. He knows that he is possessed by the one true God. So his soul is secure and his legacy is going to be powerful. And his words are going to endure. And it's a challenge for us. Is this what we want? Do we want idolatry or reality? Convenient fictions or, the, or gospel truth? Do we want to be possessed by God no matter what? Or would we shrink back knowing what's coming for us? And of course, this leads to something even more intimate, which is God's personal touch. Look at verses 6 through 9. God's personal touch. So thus far, we've seen that God works in history, speaks in history, but inhabits eternity, plans, has his counsel, and executes his will from before the time began. The question naturally arises, how? How, how, can, he, how can a God outside of time speak into time? How exactly does God do this work that he's going to do in creation? And this is one of the clearest passages in Scripture, Jeremiah chapter 1, that shows us how God does it. And the answer is, he does it through words. He does it through speaking. So what we see in verses 6 through 9 is that God's powerful and personal interaction with Jeremiah creates an identity between the words of Jeremiah and the words of God. God's powerful and personal interaction, his touch, creates an identity between the words of Jeremiah and the words of God. And this is absolutely fundamental for our understanding of the Bible. Century upon century of scholars, philosophers, teachers, even down to common men and women on the street, have expended incredible force through books and speeches and arguments to say this cannot be the word of God. This book cannot be his words. And as Christians, we stare at these verses in Jeremiah and we say this is not something that we're trying to make up. We're not trying to fabricate this. We're simply trying to recognize this is exactly what God intended when he came to Jeremiah and when he inspired these words. He wanted to create an identity between the words of his prophets and his very voice. And so we simply recognize them. And not only that, but the Christian testimony throughout the ages is we hear his voice in the words of Jeremiah. We don't hear a dead prophet when we read this book. We hear the voice of Almighty God. But we still need to understand this is strange. It's strange that God would choose to do something by speaking. And it's hard for us to understand because we all come from the same school as Al Capone, who, as you remember, said, you can get a lot further with a kind word and a gun than a kind word alone. Right? And there's something we recognize as, in the realm of human speech, true about that statement. We say things like, talk is cheap. Watch what they do, not what they say. And we recognize that our own speech is often 
It sometimes works, but it's often ineffective and useless. It's often just noise coming out of people's mouths. It doesn't mean anything or do anything. We might say at this time in American history, words out of the mouths of some people have never been so cheap. But when we look at the Bible, we have to say, not so with God. Not so with God. He says in Jeremiah 23, 29, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Job 37, God, it says, God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things we cannot comprehend. My favorite example of the power and efficiency, the effectiveness of God's word is, is Jesus in the Gospels. Right, because here's what you don't ever see with Jesus in the Gospels. You never see something like this, where he says, be healed. He goes, wow, that, that didn't seem to work. Let me try that again. <clears throat> be healed, right? It doesn't take twice. It's one word, and they're healed. All the molecules, all the atoms in creation respond to his voice. And of course, we see this beautifully in Isaiah 55, where it says, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it to which we can only respond that God gets things done with words. God gets things done with words. And the book of Jeremiah is, in essence, a war of words. It's a war of words. You have God and Jeremiah versus everyone else. And Jeremiah goes and he preaches and he says, this is what's going to happen. And the people say, that's not what's going to happen. And he says, you're false prophets. And the false prophets say, no, we're true prophets. At every moment, he's contradicted, fought. And you know what Jeremiah's strategy is? Here's Jeremiah's strategy. Watch and see, right? Wait and see. Because God doesn't have to do something else besides speaking. His words accomplish his purposes. And in the entire book, along with the entire history of Judah and Jerusalem, stand as evidence of this, forcing us to see Jeremiah was right. The case is indisputable. And to be honest, that's why we're reading this today. We wouldn't be reading a book of failed prophecy. We're reading it because God is speaking to us today, saying, don't you see whose words ultimately prevailed? Judah was destroyed, just like I said. And then this book of Jeremiah is taken up into the harmonious voice of all of Scripture that says, turn from sin, turn from idolatry, repent and believe in the gospel. So God calls Jeremiah, he goes with him, he puts his words in his mouth, and that word prevails even to this day. 
God's personal touch on Jeremiah's life endures to this day. And now number four, God's global power in verse 10. God's global power. It's quite amazing that God took this teenage boy, probably between the age of 13 and 15, from three miles outside of Jerusalem and then says to him, today I've set you over nations and kingdoms. And it would make more sense if it said, I've set you over Jerusalem. But no, it's, it's over everybody. It's nations and kingdoms. God controls the whole earth. And his message of judgment and salvation is for everyone. So the point of verse 10 is simple. It's very simple. The word of God controls human history. It's the very words of God that control human history. Our problem is believing that that's actually true and seeing that it's good news. Believing that it's true and seeing that it's good news. So to see how it is good news, let's look a little closer. Notice how God describes his work to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. You have basically four negative terms and two positive terms. So let's look at the four negative terms first. To pluck up and break down, to destroy and overthrow. Any farmer with his salt will tell you that it's futile to take a bunch of good seed and simply throw it into a dense forest of trees and vines and weeds and expect anything to happen. You have to clear everything out, remove stumps and rocks, make way for the sun and rain, plant, fertilize, and tend to it, and watch it grow. What Jeremiah encounters in Jerusalem is a dense forest of wickedness and evil. And God essentially says, everything's got to go. And the equipment that he's going to use to clear his people is the nation of Babylon. So Jeremiah's message is relentlessly negative and incredibly unpopular. It's simply this. Babylon is coming to destroy you. If you submit, you survive. If you resist, you'll be destroyed. That's it. That's the message. Painfully simple. And what you see in the first 29 chapters is God saying this over and over again. Warning. And the people simply not responding. And the first 29 chapters of Jeremiah are, are brutal. It's not a fun read. It's not a vacation read. Not something you want to take out on the beach. And you wonder eventually, where am I? What is this? And what God would have us do, I believe, is to sit down and read these first 29 chapters. And it will help us understand the gospel of grace. And I would recommend it to you to sit down at some point and read Jeremiah 1 through 29. Because what it is, is we think it's ancient history, and it is, but it also becomes a mirror in which we see humanity. And eventually, hopefully, which we see ourselves. We see our own sin. 
Jeremiah 1 through 29 is what we are like in our sin. Resisting God with every fiber of our being, fighting against him. And in verse 2, in chapter 2, verse 13, God gives this summary statement. He says, my people have done two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And essentially what God is saying is it's, it's bad enough that they, they, they turned away from the living God and said, no, we don't want to hear you, we don't want to listen. It's bad enough. But, but then they went and they created this, this thing, this broken system of idolatry that can hold, he says, no water. You think of this mighty rushing river and then a, and then a man out, out in, the, in the desert with one of those things you pour spaghetti in, right, into the sink. And it's just like, you, the, this is useless. And that's what God says their religion was like. It's like you get nothing out of it. And you have forsaken me, a river of living water. So Jeremiah 1 through 29 is so valuable because it's God's perspective on our sin. And we, we love to portray our sin, our motives, our worship, and our lifestyle in the best possible light. But this book shows us what God thinks of it. Broken, corrupt, and worthless. So instead of loving God for who he is, we attempt to use him to get what we want. Instead of worshiping with all our heart, we go through the motions and try to get away with the least possible effort. And we are much more eager to hear a flattering lie than a hard truth. And our lives are characterized by a form of religiosity, but our conduct and treatment of others is often unjust. And this is what was going on in Jerusalem. It's a mirror of the human condition, and it exposes us even today. But now we, should, we shouldn't think that God wants us to read this today just to make us feel really bad. And then that's it. You got, you got your medicine. That's... That's not the ultimate purpose. The purpose is for us to get real, to wake up. God cares about sin and evil. And whether it's 40 years or four days, he will punish it eventually. He's going to deal with it. He is the just judge and he must punish evil. And what's amazing, as you read these first 29 chapters, eventually if you let them soak in, is yes, the, the rebellion and wickedness and hard-heartedness of the people is astonishing. But what's even more astonishing is that we recognize God would have been well within his rights to send Jeremiah one time and say, hey guys, you're messed up. You're corrupt. God's going to judge you. I'll see you when the Babylonians come. And that could have been it. And that could have been the warning. But God sends him over and over and over again. Forty years was Jeremiah's ministry to Jerusalem. And so what does that teach us? It teaches that while God must judge sin and evil, and he will, his desire is repentance and restoration. His desire is repentance and restoration. And this is where the positive aspect comes in. 
the last two words in in verse 10, to build and to plant. So the major problem is God has promised to judge the people, to judge sin and evil, but his desire is for repentance and restoration. So you have that on one hand. On the other hand, you have the people who are totally corrupt. Another amazing fact about the book of Jeremiah, the only two people who listen to him are an Ethiopian and a Babylonian, two foreigners. None of God's people listen to him. The people are totally corrupt. So how can God build and plant with this material? What can he do with these people? And so in chapters 30 through 33, God essentially says, well, I'm going to do something new. I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with these people. I'm not starting over. I'm going to do something new with these people. Now, businesses spend millions and millions of dollars each year trying to figure out how to incentivize employees. How can I get these people to work hard and effectively? But what every business owner knows is that no matter what you do, you can't transfer that deep internal drive, that passion that the owner alone has. You can't get them to care as much as you do. And that's the problem every boss usually has with their employee. They just don't care enough. Well, the amazing truth and power of the gospel and what we see in the new covenant in Jeremiah 30 through 33 is that God will in fact give us his own spirit which will renovate our hearts to make us love what he loves and think his thoughts after him. So he's going to change us from the inside out. We will care as much as he does because he's going to give us of himself. So right there in the middle of the book of Jeremiah, we get this unbelievable promise. What we cannot do for ourselves, God will do for us. And the central problem in the book of Jeremiah is that God is jealous for his chosen people. He dwells among them. He comes close and speaks to them. But their hearts are a million miles away from him. You get the sense in Jeremiah that God is a complete stranger to the people. They know nothing about him. Even though his name is on them and his temple dwells in their midst. And God says, what is the outcome of this way of life? And the only answer is judgment. So God says, now combining Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, God says, I'll take care of this. I'm going to send my servant my only son, and he's going to obey in their place, and he's going to take the wrath that they deserve on himself. And this is going to clear the way for me to send my spirit to change their hearts, to open their eyes so that they will know the truth and be set free to love righteousness and hate wickedness. The new covenant is such good news because God's doing all the work And we are receiving from his fullness grace upon grace. So the end of our verses today, verse 10, ends on a positive note. God is using his global power for our restoration. God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ. And this message is not just for Judah, but for all people. So we implore everyone 
be reconciled to God. So to return to the main idea, through the words of Jeremiah, we hear the voice of God and see him for who he really is. How should we respond? Just a couple closing applications. We see that God inhabits eternity and speaks into history. And so what this should do for us is to show us that God is bigger than we could ever imagine. But he's also more involved in human history, in our community, in our lives than we could ever imagine. He cares more than we imagine, even though he's bigger and outside of human history. Second, we all need more faith in the power of the Word of God. And of course, I'm not just telling us here to read more Bible. What I'm saying is we need to recognize it for what it is, not just what it says. Next time you read your Bible, perhaps think of praying something like, God, I really want to understand what this says. But also, will you help me feel what it is that's actually your voice speaking? It's the very words of God. We need to know what it is as well as what it says. And then God's global power. What is going on in the world? What is God doing with his words in the world? Well, in Matthew 24, Jesus said, This gospel must be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So as we look at all the chaos and sin and evil, we know based on God's promise that he is sustaining this world for one purpose. To bring people from dead in their trespasses and sins to fully glorified in his presence. That's what God is doing. And so we have hope. And we also have a calling. Be a part of this. Do this. Because this is what God is doing. Finally, let the life and words of Jeremiah inform your view of Christian discipleship. And it's a hard lesson. This is what it can mean to follow Christ. This is what, what it can mean to follow Christ, but it's worth it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you today for the life and words of Jeremiah, which speak, Lord, even today. They speak to us. Lord, may we feel their power. May we know the goodness of the gospel. May we fear you above all else and love the truth that we find in the new covenant, that we are made one with you by partaking of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen.